Hi, everyone. My name is George Davis, and I, too, want to thank you for joining us for this online service of the Hershey Free Church. A little later in our service, we're going to take time to celebrate communion together. So if you're a follower of Christ, I would invite you to join us in doing that. Maybe right now you want to get up and get whatever supplies you would like in terms of what to drink and a cracker, bread, or something along those lines. I'll be using I'll be using the cup and wafer that we'll be using here at church. So that will come a little later in our service. Now, if you're if this is the first time you've joined us either in person or online, we're in this series entitled A United Church in a Divided World. Over the last few weeks in the month of August, we've been talking about, you know, what does it look like for us to um, really live out our commitment to Christ in a world that's divided? And how do we how do we do that in a church community setting? What does that entail? So we've been talking about how we can be a united church in a divided world. And and of course, at the root of what we've been talking about is, is our need to function really well as a church family, as a church community. And since we've been talking about this, now as we're preparing to go into fall, I, I wanted just to highlight just a couple of ways in which you can get connected in the life of our church. I realize some of you may be, at this point, you've, you've been joining us, but you've only joined us online. Some of you have never had the opportunity to actually be here physically, and I just want to thank you for being part of our community. But I also want to invite you to get connected, and here are a couple of ways you can do that. First of all, I think a great way to get involved and get connected is by serving. This is just a a unique opportunity to uh, not only meet people, but also invest in others. And as we prepare to go into fall, we have a variety of ways in which you can get involved in serving and kind of just uh, investing and and serving other people in the life of our church and beyond. And if you'd like to find out more about what that might look like or just to explore that more, uh, I encourage you to check out hfcinfo.com and you will see a tab, (laughs) the Say Yes tab. That's the tab you click on, and it will give you information about different serving opportunities as well. as you, If you just want more information, there's a response form online. So I encourage you, if, if you're kind of trying to figure out what a next step might look like for you, this could be it, to step into opportunities of service. But I also want to let you know uh, that an important part of the life of our church here at Hershey Free are our small groups, which we call Live, Love, Lead groups. And and again, if, if you're new to our church, this, this is part of what I think you need to know about us, is that we really encourage people to get connected in group environments. We think this is a place to build relationships. It's a place where we really learn to, to be for one another, to grow together, to learn together, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. And uh, so if, if you've not been a part of one of our groups, or if you would like to just find out more information. We have a starter night coming up on August 29th at 6 p.m., and that will be an opportunity for you to find out more, and if you're willing to kind of try one out, to test drive a small group, we'll give you the opportunity to do that. And and just to uh, let you know what that can look like, and just to hear one person's experience, I want you to join me in watching this now. Hi, my name is Brooke Avon, and my husband and I and my daughter Ellie have been coming to Hershey Free since the beginning of spring, and we decided to join into an LLL group um, because we just know that um, it's really hard to find friends in the area, 
and we know that the best way to do that is honestly to just jump right in. Something that can be difficult or maybe holding me back personally um, from joining a group was the time. I was a little bit skeptical of how everything would work out. We have a 20 month old daughter. Do we do it after nap? Do we do it during nap, before nap? How does that all work out? Um, but to be honest, it was so easy to communicate with the rest of the group. Um, um, we are all have that common um, thing and it's really hard sometimes to figure out a time, but everyone was so easy to work with. They, everyone wanted everyone wanted this community. And that was what's so unique about our group was because we've been so distant, it felt like during this whole COVID season that we all had this common theme of really just genuinely wanting friends. Um, being able to go to church on Sunday and not just leaving right away because you don't know anyone. Um, and then being vulnerable right up front is, I know, pretty difficult. But I think what's something that COVID taught me was the more vulnerable we are, um, the more deeper friendships happen so quickly. So our group, um, actually none of us knew each other. There's actually only one couple in our group that has been to Hershey Free for longer than a year, it seemed like. Um, and it was just interesting how all of us click. Like most of us have a common denominator either between medical or teaching, um, which is so cool to see how God has really just woven our interests together into becoming a group. What I would say is definitely join a group. I mean, there is something so special about getting to know people in a deeper level um, and doing life with them. I mean, we challenge each other, um, we pray for one another, and I know that it's just such a breath of fresh air when we get to meet to together and we get to do dinners together our kids get to know one another and it's just such a great way to feel like not just a number that comes in and out of the door um, but to actually genuinely know people and that has just been so just so important to me just after everything that we've gone through um, with the COVID season So again, that starter night is coming up in only a few days, and I really encourage you, if you are open to trying out a group, that you would just come and check it out. No pressure, no, no concern if this isn't for you, but I just encourage you to come and check that out to find out more about what that can look like for you. Now, as I said, in this series, we've been talking about what it looks like for us as a church to work together, to be united, particularly in light of the kind of unique cultural moment of which we are a part. And over the last two weeks, we talked about how do we, how do we engage one another well? What does that look like? And how do, how do we handle situations where we disagree? And we, we kind of talked in big picture terms, also talked more directly in terms of how do we actually engage one another? And, and over the last two weeks of this series, this week and next week, we're going to talk more about, well, how do we how do we interact with people in our broader community when at times we disagree or when we're just coming at life differently? How do we engage well the broader community of, of which we are a part? 
And to help us think through this, we're going to look at one scene in the life of the Apostle Paul, a very influential figure in the life of the early Christian movement. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And uh, this, this is a time in Paul's life. He is traveling throughout the ancient Roman world with the message of Jesus Christ, with the good news of Christ, the gospel. He's traveling in Greece. He is planning to meet up with several of his companions. And in the meantime, while he's waiting, his, his travels bring him to one of the great cities of the ancient world, which was Athens. Uh, truly one of the great urban centers of that time, perhaps rivaled only by Rome itself. And uh, to be a visitor like Paul was to that ancient city, you, you couldn't help but be impressed with the architecture, with the vibrancy. I mean, even to this day, right, when you travel to Athens to see the Parthenon, which would have been standing in Paul's day, and to just imagine what that powerful city would be, would have been like. It's just, it's an impressive experience. Yet while other guests might have simply marveled at the architecture, the vitality of the community, when Paul comes to Athens, he notices something else. And so this kind of brings us to Paul's experience in Athens. Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them, that is his companions, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Right? While other people might have noticed the architecture and other things going on, Paul noticed the idols. Now, for those of us, those of us who are followers of Christ, at one level, right? I mean, Paul's situation is it's very different culturally and historically. It was just a different time and a different place. Yet I think, I think in another way, you and I, as followers of Christ, there's a real sense in which we can find ourselves standing right next to the Apostle Paul. Because in a broader sense, here's what Paul experienced. Paul was confronted with the reality that other people had different perspectives on life and truth and priorities, different perspectives on the purpose of meaning of life, different perspectives on what it means to be hum- human, and, and really different perspectives on the supernatural or the divine. He found himself in a very pluralistic context. And while our situation is very different, we in, in so many ways, we find ourselves in, in that kind of context today. And there can be moments that really remind us of that. Moments where I think in a very acute way, we're kind of standing next to Paul, confronted by this reality. For instance, there can be moments right now kind of confronted with broader cultural and political trends. And at points, we see people holding very different views than our own. Differences in priorities, differences in understanding human sexuality, differences in, in beliefs, and, and it feels like they're coming at us at times, and you find yourself standing next to Paul. Likewise, I think in whatever your kind of day-to-day life looks like in some of our relationships, in school, some of you are going back to school, in, in, in the workplace, in your communities, at, at times... At times we come into situations or conversations or things going on around us that that just kind of confront us with, wow, my approach to life is very different 
than these other people around me. There, there, you know, there's some commitments that I have that just don't seem to fit into this environment well at times. And we may, you know, at times we're kind of maybe just trying, it's hard to figure out how to navigate that and what that looks like. And at times, I think some of you would say, yeah, I feel that. At times, in, in a real sense, we just, we just find ourselves standing next to the Apostle Paul as he comes into Athens. So, how do you deal with that? You know, I, I was I was talking to, I was talking to a, a group within our church this week, and, and kind of we were talking about this experience. And you know, one of the things we acknowledge is due to kind of this broader cultural reality. At times, we kind of get stuck, even wondering how are people interpreting us, or how, what are people thinking about us. Um, as one person told me, sometimes I'm just wondering, do, do they feel that because I'm a Christian, I'm judging them all the time? Do, you know, is, is that the reality? And I think you and I feel that too. We, the, the truth is we, we live in this pluralistic environment that in different ways reminds us that people are coming at life from very different positions than our own. So we find ourselves standing next to Paul. So what, what do you do in those situations? When you're interacting with friends, when you're, you know, in your workplace, in school, I mean, how do, you, how do you respond sometimes? And what does that look like when you're kind of confronted with people coming at life from very different angles and very different perspectives? Well, here are a couple of possible responses I think we can take. I mean, on the one hand, I think, and, and this is what you see sometimes, I think, uh, you know, because it feels like people are coming after us and their views are attacking ours, then we, we go into attack mode. And when I see these realities, uh, I can go into attack mode. We can do this online. We do it in conversations. And maybe we, maybe even if we're not kind of belligerent in our interactions, we just have this mindset that we've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. So one possible response to kind of living in a pluralistic context is we go into attack mode. I think another thing we can do is we just withdraw. You know, how do I pull back? How do I stay away? How do I just stay connected with people that are like me? And uh, that's another response. Maybe a third response is, you know, I'll, I'm just going to fit in. I'm just going to go with the flow in the midst of these different approaches. I'm going to blend in, fit in as best I can. And I just kind of fit in with everybody else and avoid hard conversations, avoid kind of sharing my views. I just kind of go with the flow. And the, I mean, we could list other possible um, responses, but I think these are three, three different ways that we can approach this broader pluralistic culture. Now, as it turns out, you know, as you read this chapter, as we read further, Paul really doesn't adopt any of these. And I think in, instead... In his own way, he's going to engage the situation. In a moment, I'll give you kind of a phrase I find helpful in describing that engagement. But in reality, in, in some sense, what Paul does here, I think, is just he's learning, he's learning to follow the example of Christ and engaging people and what that looks like and how to do that well. I mean, one of the, one of the things is, you know, in a, in a real sense, Jesus was born into a world where all of these responses were at work, right? Jesus was born into a Jewish context where uh, there were some people that were 
ultimately in attack mode. There were some people that looked at, at Israel and the fact that Israel was under foreign domination, under the control of the Roman Empire, and said, we, how do we kick the Romans out? How do we take back control? And this would develop into the zealot movement that would lead to multiple revolts in Israel. So there were those people. There were some people who said, no, we've just got to withdraw. We've got to disengage. Otherwise, we, we will become tainted by what's going on in our country. And maybe the classic example um, at that time was the Essene community. This is a group of Jewish uh, people who, who chose to kind of pull out of mainstream Israel and develop their own community along the shores of the Dead Sea, which is now known as Qumran. This is, they were the people that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you probably heard of that. But they, they, in a real sense, withdrew from the broader culture. Then there were those who sought to blend in. And in many ways, you see this in examples of this in the aristocratic classes of Israel at the time of Jesus. People who say, we're, we're going to do whatever we can just to go along with the Romans and, and make sure we work together. You gotta kind of, you've got to be with them if we're going to make things work. So we're just going to blend in. But Jesus really followed none of those models. He, he chose to engage. And we're going to see that in Paul's example as well. So, so what does Paul do? Well, as we continue in this scene, so right, he comes into, he comes into Athens. And while other people, know, you know, other people notice the grandeur of Paul, Paul is distressed by the idolatry. So what happens? So he, now notice this, he reasoned. I'll come back to that in a moment. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And the, the idea of, this is just a great term for engagement. That's, it's, it's, he, he entered into conversations, and it could include debate, and it's the passing back of forth of ideas, but it, it wasn't what you might call preaching in the classic sense because there was a lot more interaction. It's, there was dialogue. So he kind of got into, you know, he got into conversations, got into relationships, and, and he, he heard people's story. They heard his story. And in the midst, he was communicating uh, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as it turns out, the fact that he was interacting with people, this word got out about this guy who's talking to people about this, you know, new approach to life, this newfound religion. And, and it was described in different ways. And, and all these interactions and conversations he had in the synagogues and the marketplace led to an invitation to speak at the Areopagus, which was really a center for civic and judicial decisions. It was kind of a center of public life in in is uh, excuse me in Athens and it gives him an opportunity really to speak to the leaders of that community and and really as you kind of read further as this speech unfolds uh, we really get get a handle on, on how Paul is approaching this situation so let me let me just highlight a couple of I think elements of I think what his approach develops in us first of all I think there's there's a framework a framework in terms of what's going on in life and how the world works and how humanity works. And I think we see this as you read further into the speech of Acts 17. Now, please remember, this is important, that 
Luke, who's writing Acts, is simply giving us kind of a, a <laughs> this is a synopsis of this scene, right? I mean, Paul's speech, the interaction would have been much longer, but, but in essence, notice how Paul gives, or, or excuse me, notice how Luke gives us a synopsis of what's going on here. So let's read part of this passage. So Paul's invited to the Areopagus, and just pay attention to the framework that shapes Paul's communication. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now notice he doesn't, right? He's not in attack mode. He's actually what we would call here Hershey Free. He was building a bridge, right? He's acknowledging something he can acknowledge that he appreciates. Look, you're very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And the truth is, in that context, they were so concerned about not of, not, uh, they were so concerned about missing out on one of the gods that there was actually an altar to an unknown God. But Paul continues, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And notice, he even quotes some of their own poets. Some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So, again, notice the framework that, that shapes Paul's engagement. Foundational to, the, to how Paul engages, right, is, is his understanding of who God is and what God is doing. I mean, his framework that shapes how he approaches life and how he approaches relationships and how he kind of just does life, his framework is shaped by the reality of who God is and what he's doing. So notice, among other things, right, in this passage, he highlights the fact that, well, God is creator, right? He's made the world and everything in it. God is transcendent, right? He's not served by human hands. He's not dependent on us. He shows that God is the Lord of history, right? He's determined the times, the places of human history. He also shows that, that we have been created to be in relationship with him. This is, this is how we're designed, right? God has done this so that we would seek him. And furthermore, he shows, and, and you only see kind of a brief allusion to this, but I think this would have been part of the, further, uh, the, the larger conversation. He shows that Christ is, is both Savior and Judge. It's clear that at some point he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection, that through the work of Christ we can be forgiven, restored, we can become part of God's rescue plan. Therefore, the invitation, the challenge is to repent. And in saying that, Paul is emphatic. History isn't simply moving in circles. History is moving in a particular direction in which Christ himself will be the final judge. 
now you might you might wonder why doesn't why doesn't Paul talk more about Jesus? Or why doesn't Luke give us more of that part of the conversation? Because I do think that was part of the part of the interaction. But I think part of what we're seeing here is particularly in this context, and I think in many ways this is true today, to, to understand Jesus fully, these people needed to understand the full storyline. They needed to understand, right, the reality of who God is, that he is creator, that he, is, that he has created us to, to know him. He's created us in his image. He has created us to worship him and to reflect his image in to the broader world, in, in, in our work, in our relationships, in our families. But now that's, right now that's been distorted. That's been distorted by the sin and brokenness that is a part of our world. But God doesn't give up on his creation. Through Jesus, it is now possible because of Christ's work on the cross to experience new life, forgiveness, and we enter into that new way of life through repentance and faith. We become part of his rescue plan. And then ultimately, one day, that plan will be complete. And, and, and so Paul understands, you know, for them to make sense of where he's coming from, you need to understand this, this bigger storyline of who God is and what he is doing through the work of Jesus. Now, I realize at this point, at this point, you might be saying, George, it, it feels like you're saying the same thing week after week, right? I mean, here you're talking about Paul's framework. Last week you talked about mindset. And previously, you know, we talked through Colossians. We talked about being deeply rooted together. It seems like you're, you're very intentional in coming back to these themes of, of, of our mind, our framework, how we think, and that all of that needs to be deeply rooted in the work of Christ, in the storyline of Scripture. And if you're noticing that, you know what? You're right. I think that is all true. And here's one of the reasons why that's important. I think particularly in, in our divided and divisive and polarized context, and particularly I think for us as Christians, when at times it feels like, I mean, rightly or wrongly, at times it feels like we're under attack or our views are really being challenged in ways that haven't been challenged before, particularly in this broader cultural moment. It, it's easy to react strongly. It's easy to react in anger. And it's easy then to blame that reaction on the people around us, right? I mean, yeah, maybe I blew up, but you know, maybe, maybe yes, this is how I feel, and but it's not, it's because they're it's because of what they're doing. You always think about uh, interaction I had with one of our sons many years ago when our kids were little, and I was disciplining one of our sons, and I asked him, "Why did you hit your brother?" And he said, "Because he was going to hit me back." You're like, right? whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and, and I think particularly in, in the tension, in the heightened cultural division of our moment, it's easy for us to react and simply blame our reaction on all the environment around us. And that, I get that. That makes sense. However, Paul doesn't do that. I mean, notice Paul is deeply distressed by what he sees, but he doesn't go nuclear right in this conversation. Actually, he tries to build a bridge. We've been talking about building bridges over the last year, kind of investing in relationships and building bridges in our community. And this, this is a classic example of that in Scripture. That's what Paul does as he enters into this, enters into this presentation, this dialogue, this conversation. 
And, and I think Paul does this, and he does it in a way that we see, notice this, his, ultimately his response is not governed by his environment, right? His response is not governed by the heat of the moment. His response is not governed by how frustrated he is. His response is governed by the gospel. His response is governed by this awareness of who God is and what he's doing. And, and let me just say, I think, if, you know, as followers of Christ, particularly as it now feels like, you know, the changes in our culture are accelerating and it's getting more pluralistic, particularly for those of you who are parents and you're kind of, wow, this is the world in which I'm, I'm, I'm coming to raise my kids and it's becoming kind of very different than even the world that I grew up in at times. And you're feeling that weight and that pressure, particularly in the intensity of that moment. Now more than ever, we need this framework this framework rooted in the good news of Christ, this framework rooted in the storyline of who God is and what he's doing. And I think ultimately then this, this framework can produce, it produces discernment, kind of just kind of a, a different way to think about culture, a different way to think about what's going on around us. Because once again, remember, Paul comes into the city, a city where most people just look around and as they kind of interpret culture, they're just impressed by what they see. But what grabs his attention are the idols. And here's what I think Paul understood. Paul understood, once again, because his mind, his, his life is shaped by this framework of the storyline of Scripture. What, what Paul understood was, you know what? We've been created to know God, to worship him. And whether, whether you understand that or not, the truth is, that's how you're designed. And this is where, ultimately, we are to find our sense of meaning and purpose and identity in life in the context of this relationship. But now do the reality of sin and brokenness in our lives and the lives of others, that, that pursuit wired into us can now become distorted in other directions. That pursuit of God is now redirected toward other things. And that leads, us, that leads us into idolatry. And I realize, you know, to some, just saying the word idolatry or bringing up that concept just seems outdated, right? I mean, we don't drive down Chocolate Avenue and see little statues of ancient deities. I get that. Yet in reality, that, that phenomenon is still at work. Because the idolatry is at work when we take certain dimensions of life and make them ultimate in our lives, even the good things in life. And we say these things are going to provide an ultimate sense of meaning and purpose in my life. This is where true life is found. For instance, you know, I can, <laughs> I can make power ultimate in my life. So for me, the, the ultimate sense of meaning and purpose can be found in success, in winning, in influence. Or I can take control and I can make that ultimate in my life. And that leads to, to self-discipline and the, the pursuit of certainty and kind of meeting certain standards with the expectation that if I do the right things, it'll produce the right outcome. But the reality is, and these are normal parts of life, control and power, but when we take these dimensions and make them ultimate, we're asking them to carry a weight they were never intended to carry. 
and that can be dangerous. I mentioned before that I just find this a fascinating quote by the author D.F. Wallace, who's an intriguing figure, a, a, an interesting individual who never made any claim to believe in God or Christ or Christianity, yet he had this profound sense that even though he didn't believe in God, that all of us in a real sense are designed for worship. And he, he once said that whether we realize it or not, all of us worship something. But he also said you better be careful because if you're not careful, what you worship can eat you alive. And, and that's the reality of idolatry, right? Because in my pursuit of power, when I make power ultimate, I can, I can be haunted by the threat of humiliation. And I can be controlled by the emotion of anger whenever I feel that my power is threatened. When I make control ultimate, I can be terrified by uncertainty. And some of us experience that acutely over this last year and a half because in so many ways, even the normal amounts of control that have been in our lives have been taken away. Because I'm terrified by any perceived lack of control, I can be gripped deeply in an ongoing way by worry and anxiety. And see, I think... Paul's framework gave him a certain discernment, a discernment that we need to have as we look at the world around us. Because we live in a world, a cultural moment, and this has been true of human history, where people are trying to make life work. But often in trying to make life work, we take the different dimensions of life and seek to make them ultimate. Power, control, relationships, appreciation, comfort. And, and we just need to be aware that that's happening around us. This is the cultural context in which we live and operate. And so Paul, Paul has a framework about who God is. And it's, right, it's, it's led to kind of discernment and understanding the cultural reality of his context. And, and I think that then leads to engagement. Once again, think about how how the scene unfolds. Luke says, you know, Paul comes into the city. Yeah, he's not, <laughs> he's not impressed the way other people are impressed. Instead, Paul, and, and Luke uses this term, he is distressed because he sees the idols, right? He is, he's distressed because he sees the reality of idolatry and he understands what idolatry produces, right? He has the discernment to understand where idolatry is headed. It's a fascinating term that Luke uses there. Uh, it's really kind of a very <laughs> powerful term, as scholars have noted. It, it, it kind of communicates powerful emotion, but arguably it, it communicates both the themes of anger as well as sorrow. And I think those go out of his, grow out of his understanding of idolatry. They grow out of this framework of understanding who God is and what God is about. Because in understanding who God is, he is he's angry because the reality of God's holiness is being violated. But he's also grieved. He's sorrowful because the reality of God's love is not being experienced. He sees people in the grip of idolatry people who are trying to make good things into ultimate things or people who are, are caught in unhealthy approaches to life. And so he is deeply moved. He is angered 
but he is also grieved. He is moved by God's holiness, but also moved by God's love. And um, if I could kind of characterize this kind of response with a phrase, a phrase that I found helpful is something used by uh, author uh, Russell Moore in one of his books that I I found really helpful. And, And that's really trying to get the idea of being both motivated by God's holiness as well as motivated by love to kind of communicate that in a simple phrase. Moore uses the phrase convictional kindness. And I really do think you see that in Paul's life. I mean, clearly, even in this scene, he's motivated by deep convictions. He won't compromise in any way on the truth of who God is and how God has created the world and what that entails. He's adamant about that. But he's also motivated by kindness, by a desire to build bridges, to engage in conversation, to truly be for these people and, and help them understand the reality that they don't, they don't have to stay in the grip of idolatry, that it's, it's time to embrace the good news, to repent and believe the good news. And, and Paul gives us a clue that this is kind of how he approached life, even in one of his letters, because in 2 Timothy 2, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now, I think the challenge is when we, you know, when we think about convictional kindness, it can be easy kind of to, <laughs> to kind of get stuck in one part of that phrase. It can be easy just to be people of deep convictions that blast others. It can be easy to be people of of kindness and love, even toleration, that kind of just become passive about living out our convictions. But, But Paul embraced both. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more just about how to kind of flesh this out in the context of conversations and interactions. But, but this is really the phrase I, I wanted to leave you with, to wrestle with what does this look like in your life? To be a person of convictional kindness, right? People, we're acting out of convictions. We're not ashamed of our convictions. But even as we do that, we're also, we're we're seeking to embody the love of Christ and the love of God in in our interactions and in our friendships and our spheres of influence. And and very quickly then, let me me just give you a couple of questions, maybe to kind of help diagnose um, where you're at on this and how you're doing. I think um, these were just kind of questions I found myself asking myself this week and thinking about living out convictional kindness. Um, one of the questions is, so how am I contributing? How am I contributing? You see, I think when, when, we, when we operated out of this framework that, that Paul had of who God is and what he's doing, that, that moves us into the lives of other people. So how am I contributing? Now, that's a weighted question. I have to be careful about asking it because, you know what, I realize we're at different seasons. Some of us, just the responsibilities of life uh, are really heavy right now, and the last thing I want to do is, is kind of guilt you with one more thing you want to do. But just understand that when we, we embody this framework and kind of seek to live out of our convictions in a kindness that reflects God's love, it, it, it is going to move us into the lives of other people. So, so what does that look like for you? A second question is, <laughs> it's this, am I curious? Now, one of the things I appreciate about Paul coming into this context is, you know, he said he reasoned. That is, he kind of, he went back and forth. He kind of came to understand where people were coming from, even as he presented the gospel with deep passion and conviction. And, and 
you know, am I, am I curious in my relationships with other people? Because if I'm seeking to contribute to build into relationships, if I'm seeking to do what we've been talking about over the last year and building bridges, am, am I curious about getting to know people um, in my sphere of influence, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, and just kind of getting to know who they are as I seek to be a person of convictional kindness? And then maybe the, the final question is this, am I confident? See, sometimes part of the danger in responding to a pluralistic world is we, we become so fearful of what's going on that maybe I withdraw or maybe I only, maybe I withdraw and then I attack. But do I have a confidence in the storyline that Paul presented? Do I have a confidence that God is really working out this plan, even given the, the diversity and pluralism around me, even though at times it feels like oh, Christianity's is unatta- under attack. Do I, do I have a confidence that, you know, Christ is still building his church? And does that, then, that confidence then give me a freedom to engage others, even others who disagree? Because I think if I don't have that confidence, I may feel like I'm just going to stay with my tribe, with my people, and avoid others. But, but with that confidence that flows out of this framework, I can, I can really embrace a life of convictional kindness. So we'll talk more about what this can look like in terms of conversations. But even for now, just, just challenge you to wrestle with that, that concept of convictional kindness and what it could look like in your life. Am I contributing? Am I curious? And am I confident? With that in mind, let's pray together. Gracious God, I, I undoubtedly know that in different ways, uh, many of us kind of find ourselves kind of standing next to Paul. <laughs> Just the weightiness as he enters into Athens of, of experiencing a, a world of seems to be more divided, more divisive, experiencing viewpoints and realities that are very different than our own. And I pray even now that so many ways we could respond, that we could learn from Paul's response to be people of convictional kindness, people so rooted in this framework of who you are and what you're doing, that we we have a discernment in understanding our culture and a willingness to engage it well. Father, as we continue to talk about what that looks like, I just pray that we would be open to that in our own lives. And I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I told you a moment ago, uh, we're going to now conclude this service with a time of communion. And so if you haven't gotten your uh, stuff ready yet. I kind of give you a moment to do that now. Again, uh, even as you're doing that, I want to thank you for joining us and again remind you about that starter night coming up so that you can jump into a small group or at least uh, test drive that. Encourage you to think about that. So now let's let's come to this time of communion. And again, as we've been been thinking about as we've been thinking about Paul's response in Athens. All of it is ultimately grounded in this framework of the gospel of who God is and what he's doing. And, and all of that framework ultimately hinges on the fact that Christ was crucified and then raised in triumph on our behalf. So ultimately, this life of, of convictional kindness is a life that flows out of the work that Christ has done for us. 
So with that in mind, let's just celebrate this together. So if you take whatever uh, supplies you are using, just join me now. Jesus says, this is my body, it's broken for you. This is my blood, it's shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me pray again for us. So, Father, as we think about engaging our world well and our community well, we acknowledge ultimately that the approach we see in the life of the Apostle Paul flows out of your work on our behalf. And we thank you for that work. We thank you for the work that gives us forgiveness and new life. We thank you for the work that that allows for the ongoing transformation of our lives by your Spirit. And Father, we thank you for your work through Christ that gives us the confidence to see that history really is moving in a particular direction. Gives us the confidence, even in a crazy moment that at times feels so uncertain, to be confident that you are at work and your plan is at work, and we are a part of it. So I pray that in light of your work, that truth will embolden us to be the people who live out convictional kindness in our schools, in our relationships, in our work. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you again to join us next week as we continue talking about what this looks like and even what conversations and interactions can look like. But even now, let me just leave you with this one final question. And that is this. So what does convictional kindness look like in your life? What does convictional kindness look like in your life? Amen.